I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. Welcome to Episode 8. Last episode, our guests were both from within the Academy, and they discussed what the year holds for expression and engagement. Today, we have the opportunity to flip the script and discuss higher ed's relationship with free speech and democratic learning from the perspective of two esteemed journalists. Hailing from the higher education beat, we are thrilled to be joined by Alyssa Nadwarni from National Public Radio and Michael Powell from the New York Times. But first, class notes, a look at what's making headlines. Can listening to your student body put your college at risk? This is one of the questions people are asking in the aftermath of the Oberlin College versus Gibson's Brothers Inc. case. The seemingly run-of-the-mill case of arrest due to underage purchase of alcohol and shoplifting became a campus-wide sensation following accusations of the incident being racially motivated. Students protested the bakery and urged the college to drop its contracts with Gibson's. Gibson's responded by suing Oberlin for defamation. Ultimately, the verdict found that Oberlin officials had defamed the bakery by supporting students who accused it of racial profiling. The $36 million payout to Gibson sends a message to administrators everywhere that there's a line between supporting students and supporting a cause. The U.S. Department of Education received 240,000 comments during its 60-day comment period for proposed Title IX regulations. News reports highlighted some common themes such as concern about mandatory reporting rules that could drastically alter student-faculty relationships, distress at the elimination of live hearings and cross-examinations, and allegations that the new regs will impinge on free speech protections. We are now less than 50 days away from the midterm election, which means organizers and election officials across the country are working overtime to register new voters, educate eligible voters, and ensure voter turnout rates don't fall prey to the historical midterm slump. Luckily, there are a host of civic holidays during this final stretch that are particularly useful outreach tools for civic coordinators on college campuses. Last week's National Voter Registration Day saw over 4,000 community partners host events and social media campaigns to register voters. National Voter Education Week, coming up the first week of October, coordinates organizers in all 50 states to guide registered voters through the voting process and educate them to make sure they are hashtag ballot ready. With most voters being able to vote prior to election day, vote early day on October 28th, we'll see hundreds of thousands of Americans engaging in the democratic process before election day. Nevertheless, no day is more important than November 8th, election day. So all listeners, check your voter registration status and make sure you and your friends all have plans to vote. Now it's time to turn to our featured guests. I'm particularly excited about today's experts. Since I read a lot of higher education news, and I mean a lot, Michael and Alyssa both have celebrity status in my book. 
Michael's been at the New York Times since 2007. He's a national reporter covering issues around free speech and expression and stories capturing intellectual and campus debate. He was part of the team that won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for breaking news for coverage of the sex scandal that resulted in the resignation of Governor Elliot Spitzer. Alyssa Nudwarney is an NPR correspondent following big stories like unprecedented enrollment declines, college affordability, student debt crisis, and workforce training. Her work has won several awards, including a 2020 Gracie Award for a story about student parents in college, and a 2018 James Beard Award for a story about the Chinese-American population in the Mississippi Delta. She's been at NPR since 2014. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. All right. So I always like to start with people's backgrounds because I think people's stories are interesting. And I'd love for each of you, maybe Alyssa, you can start to tell me a little bit about your journey to this particular beat and maybe what drew you to covering higher ed. Well, I always knew I wanted to cover education. I went to grad school for journalism and we had to pick a beat in school and my beat that I picked was education. I just think that... In general, it's one of the best beats. I mean, it's baked into everything in life. Housing, food, the economy, business, happiness. Like, it just touches everything. So, yeah, I'm delighted that this gets to be my main beat. I mean, I'm actually just back from a month in Ukraine covering the war for NPR, and there were so many education stories there, too. You know, I think covering education just, like, helps me cover everything. I happened to be there this time for the first day of school, so it was a very obvious connection. But one of the things that I kept thinking about in my reporting in Ukraine, and I think we're going to get to it today in this podcast, was just how much like education and information is power. Just as I was leaving, you know, the country's northeast near Kharkiv, Ukrainian forces took back a bunch of Russian-controlled land for the last six months. And in those pockets, there was just no internet, no information. Like the only access to what was going on was Russian radio. And so they didn't know about like Mariupol and Irpin and kind of all of these things that the rest of Ukraine has kind of been able to learn about and grieve and and the rest of the world. It's just this fascinating idea about kind of like, what's going to happen next? Like, how are they going to learn about that? And anyways, this is a, a long way to say that it just underscored, for me, the power of like information and knowledge. And hopefully we're going to get into that today. For sure. Thank you so much. And I also think it's so interesting to have you on to provide sort of a foil to, I think, what a lot of folks in, you know, U.S. education take for granted in terms of access to information and, you know, what we expect when we wake up in the morning. Okay, Michael, how about you? First place, hi. Um, My very first... First job was at uh, a paper up in Vermont covering education. So, I've, so to a certain extent, I mean, this has always been of of interest to me. I mean, I grew up in New York, went to public school, as as did my sons, and I have a kind of a visceral interest in in these issues and also just the importance um, of education to you know to an an informed society. I mean, I had. I came to this particular, my particular beat in a roundabout way. I had covered national politics, economics. I had been a sports columnist for five years and I missed, you know, it felt to me that we're at this sort of urgent point in our kind of politics and our culture 
right now. Uh, you know, very fraught, very polarized with so much of this happening and kind of that the arena of sort of free speech, higher education. And, you know, I talked with a couple of editors about getting back into that. So just after, as it turns out, COVID hit, I took on this new beat. And it's been just, you know, I mean, it's been a, a fascinating, sometimes maddening, but fascinating <laughs> time, you know, to look at this. So anyway, that, that's how I came to be where I am. Well, thank you both for sharing your stories. And I think, Michael, yours is sort of the perfect setup for where I want to go, um, which is, you know, the state of play in higher education has changed considerably, especially over the last five years, which is when the center was founded. You know, a lot of people claim that one of the significant shifts has been the use of higher education as a, you know, sort of a weapon or a tool in the culture wars. And I was wondering if each of you could sort of respond um, to that claim from your perspective. You see this, I think, on both left and right. I mean, you have this, this, you know, the college campus as absolutely contested uh, terrain. And so it plays out, you know, both on the left in ways in which, um, uh, you know, speakers are, as they say, deplatformed. Professors might be attacked for taking positions uh, on certain issues. And on the right, look, I mean, you've seen in Florida, you saw uh, some very esteemed political scientists uh, who were asked to give uh, testimony before the Florida legislature blocked by the governor from uh, from talking. So, I mean, I think there is this sense of, a, of the college campus as not just contested terrain, but as a as important symbolic terrain, a place where you know you want to assert where each side wants to assert power. No, thanks. I I definitely don't envy administrators um, at this juncture. I think it, unfortunately, a lot of the at least the speech and expression issues that I encounter is everybody is leaving unsatisfied, which is a really unfortunate you know situation to be in. So, Alyssa, go ahead with your perspective. Well, you know, I just wanted to say, like, you know, one of my parts of my job is that I talk to administrators and professors a lot and often about not a specific story. You know, I'm just in kind of constant communication to get stories or to get their comment on stories. And one of the things I hear over and over again from administrators and professors, particularly tenured faculty, is just this kind of fear and anxiety about this issue and a real hesitancy, not so much from their own communities, but from like the internet and kind of outside their campus bubble, which I think is just kind of a fascinating thing to think about where this kind of tension or anxiety or fear is coming from and why around these issues of, of free speech. I absolutely agree. Um, I always say that I'm lucky that I didn't go to college um, while there was social media because forget about being afraid of what a professor might say if I gave the wrong answer. I think I might be afraid that someone was going to pull out a phone and, you know, videotape what I was saying and then put it up on the internet, which I sort of wonder a lot about, you know, part of college is supposed to be a time to learn. And I'm just not sure how much space there is from learning from one's mistakes in, you know, our current society. Well, and I think also if there's a fear of what could be, regardless of if the what could be actually happens, that has an influence on the conversation and like what conversations can be had. 
Do either of you have any thoughts on what you think uh, universities can do uh, to sort of either mitigate or insulate themselves from, you know, external pressures, whether that's legislatively or donors or trustees or, you know, just social media? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I do think, and I want to say this, you know, advisedly, because I'm aware that it's, no, it's always easy from the outside to say, oh, well, you know, they should have more gumption or whatever, right? <laughs> but, but I do think, I mean, you know, the University of Chicago famously has, you know, its approach to speech, which is a quite, you know, quite liberal one and quite, you know, and, and, and I think with only a very few exceptions, they've been pretty good about, about hewing to this idea that, you know, a university is a place to, as you were talking about, make mistakes, to to have really, you know, free and kind of as much as one can unfettered uh, conversation. And I am struck, <laughs> I guess I'll jump in there, that I think, you know, I think too many university administrators um, are being a bit feckless and that they, you know, that there is a tendency not to want to stand up for, you know, what are, what strike me as kind of traditional, you know, sort of liberal free speech values. The foundations. Yes, exactly. You know, and of course I'm, I'm aware, as I say, and I, I'm aware that no doubt I'm being unfair to many, to many. I mean, A, it's incredibly complicated. Yep. It's incredibly unpleasant to be pilloried on, you know, on Twitter, on social media, in person. I mean, all of these things are, are very difficult issues, but it does seem to me that this is the place for it to play out. And I mean, I very much, you know, in the disty mists of time, remember when I was an undergrad, you know, and I no doubt, you know, made a fool of myself with some regularity in, in a class. But, you know, that's like, that's part that's of what it, it is. Right? Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, there is um, a great resource. Penn America has this guide on like for academics and people who are on campus to kind of think about these issues and kind of how, what their role is. It echoes a lot of the stuff that you're saying, Michael. So if we're doing a plug for kind of resources and you can link to them at the bottom the Pen America kind of like package on free speech, campus free speech is really helpful for people who are listening who may be on campus of kind of just like, I mean, it goes over First Amendment stuff for people who are speaking on campus. Like it kind of touches all of the practical things around this issue that happen on a campus. So I would highly recommend that. Absolutely. And in fact, the person who put that together, John Friedman, um, who's still at Penn, um, did part of that research as a fellow at the center. Oh, wow. So it all gets oh, it all gets cool. tied together. And he actually is going to be a guest on our next episode to talk about book banning and state legislation <laughs> with uh, a former fellow from ACLU. Oh, that's so great. that's a perfect tie-in. <laughs> One of the things that I'm imagining you've both encountered, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is this challenge that universities need to balance institutional values that sometimes can be at odds, right? So diversity, equity, inclusion, and free expression. And I'm wondering if based on your reporting, you have thoughts on how you think universities, you know, are faring with the balancing act or, you know, maybe what else they might be doing to either maintain a respectful campus climate or improve campus climate while at the same time making sure that we're staying true, right, to robust inquiry and debate and exchange of ideas. So I, I have a little, so maybe it's just because this is what I've been reporting on lately, 
But I do have a little trouble with this idea that there's this blanket value system that institutions have. I'm just going to poke holes in that for a second because we just have a number of examples of kind of quite the opposite of, of values of diversity and equity. And I think especially as the Supreme Court is going to hear affirmative action case this fall. It's for students that I talk to, it's um it's just an interesting balance that you're talking about where institutions I think have to take that idea of these things that they value, equality, diversity, free speech. I mean, I think that has to permeate kind of everything that they do. And you can tell me if this is a bit of a tangent because I I apologize. But my first reaction to that question and and kind of what I'm hearing from students is just like, do you stand for those values that we're fighting so hard against in this this arena, like in all of the arenas of an institution? Um, I'm thinking even specifically of kind of the UC system with their native student initiative. You know, they announced over the summer that they're going to offer free tuition for Native students. And the Chronicle had this great investigation last week of like, I think it's just going to impact such a small amount of students. It's like, are you kind of paying lip service to this idea and and kind of not seeing it through on the actual policy side? So forgive me if that's a tangent, but that's just one thing I was thinking about. It's not a tangent at all. I'm glad that you're poking holes in sort of even that assumption. And I think that there's been a lot of discussion about this, especially since, you know, the murder of George Floyd, when, you know, universities around the country came out with lots of great statements. And then, you know, six months later, people were wondering what actually got done. So I think it's it's a really valid point. And, you know, I think you are answering the question, which is that maybe the universities aren't faring as well as they think they are. What about you, Michael? I think it's very, these are, as Alyssa was saying, very complicated issues. I think it was rather easy in the immediate you know, wake of George Floyd to for universities to sort of say, well, we're going to do, you know, we're going to take a series of steps. And some of those proved to be very thorny. I mean, for instance, I mean, California, right, as um, to use as an example, the university system has embarked on a series of DEI initiatives. They have the Native American initiative. They also have, you know, I mean, the state voters turned down a provision to reinstate affirmative action in the university. So there, there's, you know, I was looking at some of the requirements for new hires, you know, including that they are supposed to essentially give their own DEI statement. And, you know, the question has been raised by professors, well, you know, what if one, an applicant for a position, were to say that he or she is not in favor of affirmative action? Gives a whole series of things that they want to do to work with diverse students, but say did not do that. You know, there's reason to believe that they might have a great deal of trouble getting hired. And yet, actually, that's in keeping with what is currently state law in California. It's a difficult, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to kind of take a side here. It's just, these are very difficult things. It's, it's, I think it's very easy is not the fair word. It's in the, in the wake of George Floyd, there's been an understandable you know, urgency in trying to address some of these questions. And I think how you do that is actually quite, you know, the the, the reality of implementing it is quite, quite difficult. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned about the University of California, this ban on affirmative action. 
Because I think it's kind of interesting. Your first question, Michelle, was about like where we are in this moment, feeling like the last five years, like things have really escalated and kind of this politicalization of like campus culture wars, maybe, (laughs) is that if that's a fair phrasing. I think that it's true, of course, that it's like very uh, trendy is the wrong word, but it's certainly a hot topic issue of making kind of what's happening on the college campus a popular political point. But I was thinking back to the University of California ban on affirmative action, which Michael just mentioned, which was kind of similar to what we're seeing in terms of state legislature or politics getting involved with what's going on in a campus. This happened back in 94. And it was a Republican governor who kind of like made this his issue. And he used people who were appointed by Republican governors, many of them by him, who were kind of on the board of the university system that made this decision to get rid of affirmative action. And it was just like kind of a historical example of maybe some of the things that we're seeing now. And I think that's kind of important for people to think about that this isn't a totally new kind of like political interfering with public higher ed. No, I'm really happy that you raised that. And I'm going to date myself, okay? Because when this was happening, I was at Berkeley writing papers about why this was, um, I thought, was a bad idea. And once it passed, it was one of the first elections I had ever voted on. They were stuffing mailboxes at Berkeley Law of students of color. I mean, it was, it was, it was, you're right. It was very ugly and very contentious. And, you know, I think you're right in that probably when we think about the history of whether you want to call it censorship or, challenges to speech, that isn't new. Um, You know, when you think about the free speech movement. So I really appreciate that. And perhaps we all need to maybe do a little bit of looking backward in order to help us move forward. I do think there is something going on right now, though. And maybe, I don't know if that's just kind of like the cost of college. You know, I know there's been a lot of research on people's perceptions of college right now, which we could talk more about, of course. And I wonder also if, like, I... There's something kind of being like stoked that feels very particular to this moment and kind of average Americans' perceptions of college and what happens on college campuses and, you know, how that plays into identity. So I think that feels like very of the moment. Absolutely. And I don't know the history of how, you know, American society values or doesn't value higher education, but obviously all of the, you know, so much of the polling right now talks about whether people think it's it's a value or not. Mm-hmm. And again, I I don't know enough history to know whether that is something the same or different, but I certainly think well, that no, it's... we're seeing declines. Yeah, we're seeing... That's like what kind of the research has shown is that we're seeing this decline of perceptions of like, if college is good. Yeah, and I think if I could, I mean, I also think, you know, history, it's an interesting thing. I mean, when they, when Californians rejected the most recent attempt to kind of, to reinstate affirmative action at the university level... Um, I mean, a strong majority of, large majority of Asian Americans voted against that. And as memory serves, Latino votes split about 50-50, maybe even slightly also opposed to that. So it's, you know, all of these questions are sort of, in other words, if one were to look in the, I think, the too reductive way of, well, how did people of color vote, right? 
you know, two very large groups of, you know, what are seen as people of color, that is Latinos and Asians, did not come down in ways that one might have, you know, or that I think proponents originally forecast they might, particularly Latinos. So it isn't, you know, all of these questions get get wrapped up. I mean, they're not, they get wrapped up in, in kind of the larger discontents, you know, of our society right now. Absolutely. And, you know, we can't, have this discussion about education without talking about the pandemic. And so, Alyssa, I'm going to turn to you because I know that especially during the 2020-21 academic year, you traveled to dozens of campuses to document what the reopening was like. And I'm just curious from what you've seen on campuses, you know, pre and post pandemic, you know, what do you think the impact kind of of the pandemic on expression on campus or democratic learning and engagement on campus and and maybe how that's changed. And do you think Mm. students have an appetite for democratic engagement now, you know, or are there so many other, you know, things, basic needs that are competing with that? I'll say definitely there is more of an appetite for engagement. That's for sure. So um, over the 2020-21 academic year, we went to, yeah, two dozen campuses. We basically just went on an indefinite road trip to campuses across America. And it was really helpful in getting a sense of what the pandemic was because, you know, most people were just in such a small bubble. Like we were all like, at least at the beginning, very much in our homes. Even as reporters, it's like the worst thing is that you're not traveling and talking to people. And that's the best part about reporting and what informs your work. So I noticed a few themes on this idea. I guess the first is that the pandemic connected students online in a way that I hadn't seen pre-pandemic. There was kind of this shared experience. I'm not trying to minimize the isolation or the loneliness of kind of having to do college from your parents' house or from an apartment, but uh, so many students I talked to were just finding these communities over social media, text chains, conversations with other students. And so in a lot of ways, they were organizing over social media. And so that just was something that I that stuck out to me. The other thing that I think was happening was that the relationship between a student and an institution was changing, um, especially among freshmen, because there's like a, a power dynamic that's baked into that relationship already because you've had to apply to the school, you know, especially as a, if you're coming from high school or even if you're an adult going back to college, there's just a power there you know, that that the institution has a lot of power over you as the student. And I think COVID, in an interesting way, caused students to kind of question that and, or at least just to be critical about their relationship with the institution and the handling of COVID. I think Black Lives Matter also is part of this. I mean, when we talk about 2020, it's a mix of the pandemic and also this kind of social movement. Um, But I think for a lot of students, it changed the relationship between them and their administration. So that's all kind of coming into play. And then as campuses this year are, you know, the majority, I think most are open on person. We're starting to see kind of like, okay, now what does this look like? This kind of like organization and pent up frustration or, you know, we're going to see that I think this fall and into this winter. I think it's interesting that the issue of power has come up twice now, right? You're talking in the beginning about education as power, and now you're talking about sort of flipping the script on the power dynamic between students and institutions. Um, Michael. Yes. Did you want to add anything? (laughs) No, no, I think it's true. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the, I very much defer to, to Alyssa's terrific reporting on this. I mean, I, 
you know, I think that one of the things also that it's called up is we we all know how tuition has just, you know, catapulted upwards, right? And I think <laughs> the extent to which parents and students are paying these sort of bills and getting this kind of attenuated, certainly campus experience, also is kind of, I, I, I think, has had a I don't know, perhaps a radicalizing effect on some and kind of thinking, well, you know, do I really need to spend this amount of money? So I think it has, it's played into this kind of larger debate, which you both alluded to, um, to, you know, what is the the value and the purpose of higher ed, perhaps particularly private higher ed, which is expensive, though. As a parent who has just finished paying um, state university <laughs> tuitions, I can attest that that's also rather expensive. <laughs> wow, I feel like grand- congratulations are in order for getting yeah, through right. that. <laughs> that's what I was going to say as someone who's spending the next couple of years worrying about how I will pay for. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so... You know, I can't have two esteemed journalists, you know, as guests and not talk a little bit about journalism. And, you know, obviously over the last decade, you've both witnessed the rapid decline of print newspapers and the increase in consumption of digital news. And I was wondering if either of you have any thoughts about the state of college journalism. I mean, again, I'm, I keep hearkening back to the good old days, but I mean, I got so much of my information from the Daily Cal. And, you know, have you seen a similar shrinking on campuses and, you know, do you have hope for the pipeline, you know, for future journalists? Kind of anything in that realm. I have hope. Yeah, campus journalists were just so essential to my reporting on the pandemic. Like they were holding their institutions accountable. They were, even when they weren't on campus, they were publishing regularly. Like I have so much hope for them. And I mean, we're even starting to see some like local and statewide news organizations start to like appreciate this talent pool. Um, I feel like I just recently saw maybe in Colorado, there's this big news collaborative that's partnering with local colleges. Yeah, I'm very hopeful when it comes to to student journalists. Yeah, I've seen the same thing. I mean, I, I'm always struck when I go on a campus, you know, I mean, one of the first things I do, right, is look at what has been the reporting, and it's of high quality. It's, I mean, not uniformly, but then again, it isn't either in the professional world, but (laughs) very often it's of high quality, it's passionate, it's it's well-informed, and um, I guess the only thing I worry about is that I I do see a number you know, particularly in some of the state universities, I'm not thinking here of California, um, of the, you know, kind of advent of, you know, faculty advisors who are a little more than faculty advisors. And yeah. they're more like, you know, another. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a bad idea. I mean, yeah. I think if, if we're going to talk about, you know, that one of the great uh, privileges of going to a university is the ability to make mistakes, to think, you know, to to try things and not have it work. I mean, part of that experience is to try this wonderful thing that we call journalism and see, you know, make your mistakes and 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 you know, work work as peers with each other. But having said that, I do want to return to the to the hopeful. I mean, I see so much talent. And frankly, my worry is far more that once they get out of college, you know, is there, do ladders exist for those, you know, those very talented young people? Because I absolutely 
don't buy the you know this the the grouchy old perspective you know, older perspective that oh well they weren't like we were no no these are really talented young young people it's our job to figure out you know how do we help them kind of irrigate and invigorate you know journalism in the broader world and also you know campus journalists are kind of like the ideal like local journalism, right? Because they're covering like a community in which they live and and participate in. And I'm really hoping, and we'll see if this happens, if kind of this idea of these big legacy papers and national news organizations having all their reporters and editors work from home during the pandemic, if that kind of strengthens local news systems throughout the country so that also these people have a place to land in some of those places. Because I feel like that's what makes journalism so great. You know, when I was on the road for the year of the pandemic, my journalism was so much better than if I had just lived in D.C. Yes. So I'm really hoping that that leaders in newsrooms kind of see that and make changes accordingly. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to be having a hopeful note. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to send we're going to end on a high note because we're not ending, though it still could be on a high note. Um, <laughs> I know that it, no one really loves to prognosticate um, and we don't have a crystal ball, but I would just be curious to hear you know, what you anticipate seeing kind of in higher ed, especially vis-a-vis expression and engagement you know, as we move into this, farther into this fall and the winter. Yeah, what are you watching, Michael? Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm working on a kind of a series of sort of specific stories, though actually one of the areas I am interested in looking at is free speech and the University of California system. So in, in some ways, I mean, I'm just starting, you know, to do some work on that across a number of the universities. But I think, you know, one of the things we, we haven't talked that about, that the structural problem, I think, for universities is the, you know, the tenured, the, the kind of disappearing um, tenured professor, right? And you have this just, which has been, I mean, there's been a lot of great reporting on, um, and the growth of, you know, sort of adjunct culture or non-tenured culture. And I'm interested also by what the the effect that has on free speech. So we, we know we have this you know, incredibly polarized time in our culture, right? We have people on both right and left who are both will both shriek on on social media but also are scared of and intimidated for perfectly good reasons of social media right i mean it's a it's a kind of fearsome force and to the extent that universities increasingly and colleges increasingly rely on a non-tenured sometimes even non you know contracted workforce it's you know it's it's hard to demand courage, <laughs> yeah. right, of a yeah. literature professor, a history professor who is working on a, you know, a semester to semester contract. And if those, you know, if if a group of students get angry at him or, a, you know, an off-campus group, again, right or left chooses to go after him or her, you know, that's a, a real problem. And that's a kind of a bigger so it's it, it's one, it's kind of a larger structural problem that is also meeting our you know just fraught environment. I want to read all those stories. <laughs> Me too. Okay, Alyssa, what are you going to be looking at this year? Are you back on the road? So this fall, the big 
thing I'll probably be covering is the affirmative action case. And I'm specifically looking at how students and campuses will respond. Um, And, you know, these are people who are already on campus have been through that admissions threshold. You know, they've been through the gate. So it'll be just interesting for me to see how much they participate in kind of this public conversation around college admissions, the role of race and all that. You know, often with education reporting, it can be like a lot of adults in the room talking about a thing and and not the students who are experiencing it. Not to say students aren't adults. I didn't mean that, but I just mean often, you know, we're talking about the policy and not talking about like the people that get affected by the policy. So I'm interested to see what happens with student engagement and expression around affirmative action. Well said. So we're coming close to the end and I always end um, my interviews with the same question because I think it's important to leave our listeners with some ideas for how to make an impact. Um, even, you know, on a very small scale, even if they don't have the platform, you know, of a newspaper or radio station. And the question is, you know, what's one thing that people can do today to advance expression and civic engagement? You know, and that can be on campus or it can be you know, in the greater world. Um, okay, I have two two quick answers. So I'll try and make them quick. I get this question a lot, especially from friends and family, actually, of kind of like, what can I do when I'm getting frustrated? The first thing I always say is just like community. Community is so important, whether that means just like meeting up with the people who live on your block, like literally on your street, or the people who are on your campus. I think that we, especially during the pandemic, we lost so much community. We lost like places to have dialogue with other people who are different from us or who have different experiences than us. So that's the first thing is just like find community. Literally, it can be on your block. Second thing is just appreciate the role of local news in our ecosystem. Um, I was thinking about this actually just yesterday because I've been kind of consuming and reading a lot about the Brett Favre welfare scandal in Mississippi. Essentially, Favre funneled $5 million in welfare money for building a volleyball stadium for his daughter at the University of Southern Mississippi. And I have been just consuming so much information on this story, mostly on Twitter, actually. And I realized like a lot of it was coming from the Mississippi Free Press, which is this nonprofit news organization in Mississippi. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to donate to them. So I don't know. I just feel like local news often feeds like maybe what you read in the New York Times or what you hear on NPR. And I think it's really important to be like, oh, where am I getting this? Where's like the official source of this? Oh, this is from like journalists who live there, like the Mississippi Free Press. Donate $10 so they can keep doing that. <laughs> I love those answers. Okay, Michael. I completely agree uh, in terms of supporting your local paper. And, you know, even if it's driving you crazy at any one one moment <laughs> or another, I mean, it's so important to do that. I mean, I can't, you know, tell you how many times I go out on stories just as Alyssa was saying, and it's like, it's the first, you know, you go to college papers, you go to the local paper. I did it a long time ago. I did a long, when I was in sports, investigative piece down in Baylor. And I mean, so much of that work had been done by a couple of unbelievably overworked reporters <laughs> at the Waco Tribune. I mean, you know, and I subscribed um, to it. In fact, as my wife pointed out, I had subscribed way past the point. Of, uh, I was no longer down there, so I was forced to, you know, eventually cut it. But I mean, it's it's so important to keep that up. And then the other thing I think is to 
if we're to break out of these silos we're in, which are, you know, both unfortunately informed so much of campus conversation, but mm-hmm. no different than in our everyday life, we need to like, right, learn how to talk to each other. I mean, if my son works at the Houston Chronicle and, um, you know, when he moved down there, I mean, he moved in this wonderful community in in Houston. And, you know, he was talking about like that, you know, on his block, he would see Biden and MAGA, you know, kind of side by side. That's great. I mean, it's, it's, there's so few places that you see that sort of the, in this country, right, where, where there's actually some attempt to kind of communicate across this. So to the extent that one, I think, can encourage campuses, you know, to have I mean, fine, go at each other, right? But go at each other. Don't feel like, you know, you've got to shut shut down or we're doing harm to each other. I mean, you want to, within reason, right? I'm not talking <laughs> about, um, you know, scurrilous attacks on one another. But, you know, to the extent that, that we can have this dialogue, it does seem to me that campuses provide this, you know, sort of unique resource. And um, anyway, that would be my my hope is, you know, more of that, more disagreement, more discussion, more talk and support those papers. (laughs) That's right. You heard it here first. Subscribe to your local paper. Um, (laughs) So is there anything either of you would like to add before we close? No, we covered so much ground. This was great. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's universities colleges, community colleges are really like a glory, you know, of our country. And I just, you know, I hope that, you know, among other things, that things like tuition don't just put it out of reach. I think it's a good discussion to have as to whether everyone needs X, right? Does everyone need a four-year? Does everyone need a two-year? That's a fine discussion, but we don't want to have that discussion settled because, well, it wasn't good for that person because he or she couldn't afford it. So I just hope we can figure that out. Yeah, here, here to that. Um, I really want to extend my gratitude to both of you for taking your time to share your insights and your expertise. I'm sure it's going to prove to be an interesting year and I'll look forward to following your collective coverage on life in higher education. So thanks again for joining Speech Matters. Thanks for having us. We are recording this episode during Banned Books Week, an annual event celebrating the freedom to read. Launched in 1982, this week highlights the value of free and open access to information, which has recently been threatened by a rise in book bans across the states. To learn more about what this dangerous trend means for the future of education and beyond, check out Speech Matters Episode 3. John Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America, will tell us about how censorship of curricular material, including books, is impacting education when he joins Emerson Sykes, senior attorney at ACLU, to discuss state legislation that undermines academic freedom on our next episode. Until then, register to vote and read a banned book. Banned Books.